Aloha, eco-enthusiasts. I'm Lisa B, and I'm psyched you're joining me for this very first nature-centric, eco-psyched feature episode. Let's celebrate by heading to Big Island, Hawaii, where we'll get a glimpse into one man's relationship with the outside from the inside out. is a dreamy place. It's my favorite. But have you ever found yourself daydreaming about landing on another planet? How the weather will act? What the terrain might look like? As I approach for landing, this looks like any other tropical paradise. The water is a pristine royal blue, clear down to the coral. But as my Uber sweeps me 20 minutes away to my work home for the week, I experience a different landscape. It's one of black, hardened lava, a jagged terrain as far as I can see. This is the fascinating landscape I experienced for my first week of working on Hawaii's namesake island, also known as Big Island. And it's what I assume the entire island looks like. After all, it's born from five major volcanoes. I'm on the island working in support of an exceptional organization that has conserved more than 14 million acres of North American wetlands. My work is rewarding, the people are fantastic, and yet I look ahead to the week of r I'll have on the island after a long spring of endless projects and travel. I have something else in mind, too. There's an eccentric soul on the island that I've been snooping about online for a couple months, and I want to interview him. I muster up the courage to reach out. It's just an email, which is a less risky approach than a call. I won't hear questioning or annoyance in a voice on the other end of the line, and it will give us both time to measure the opportunity. But when I don't hear back within a couple days, I worry that this opportunity is escaping. So I dig down and send a second email, and wait some more. I've done it. I've missed out. Wait. Wait! It's 7 p.m. the night before my last day on Big Island, and it happens. An email alert. Yes! It's a confirmation for an interview in the morning. I need to gather the questions in my head and jot them down in pen and ink. I need to swap the batteries in my voice recorder. And I need to plan my two-hour drive to the other side of the island to meet the Sandalwood Man. Hello, eco-enthusiasts. Lisa B. here, and I'm on Big Island, Hawaii, heading to see the Sandalwood Man. I'm driving a cross-section of Hawaii through the grasslands of Saddleback Road, the island unveils herself to me. Her microclimates range from arid lava fields to lush tropical forests. I'm headed to meet the sandalwood man at his home on the east side of the island where he cultivates a nursery of thousands of seedlings. When they're old enough, he'll plant the young trees on the island's mountains, including Mauna Kea, at times with the help of volunteers and service groups. And it appears I'm just in time to catch him in his final sandalwood campaign.
After two hours of navigating Big Island, I find myself driving down a rural gravel road, banked by tall grasses and lined with the occasional metal driveway gate. On the other side of each gate, I see glimpses of modest homes, signaling what I imagine are peaceful lives. I refocus on the road as I unsuccessfully dodge rain-filled potholes in my rented sedan. Hi, did I just pass your place? I had, and I backtracked to a newly opened gate. On top of earthquake stilts a foot or two off the ground is a small white home that appears modern and comfortable from the outside, which is where I remain so as not to intrude. The sandalwood man is waiting in the driveway. My name is Mark Hansen, and I am the Sandalwood Man, doing what I can to lend a hand to the land wherever I can. And that's all about us promoting the indigenous life of the land, which is enhanced by sandalwood trees and their falling fruit creating sugar, which sugar is a carbon, and our problem on our planet is too much carbon in our atmosphere. So what's behind the sandalwood man is a greater plan than man's. I asked Mark, what would motivate someone to take on such an important yet ambitious project? In 1980, I went up to Poli Poli State Park on Haleakala, Maui. We went there to go see the redwood trees that were planted there back in the 30s. And after we hiked in the redwood trees, my friend, Bill, took me up to the top of Haleakala, where there was still an existing sandalwood tree. And as we drove away from that sandalwood tree the first time to go across the Skyline Drive, all the hair on my body rose up and a little voice said, someday you'll regrow the sandalwood forest. And it was just one sandalwood tree that you yes, saw? one lone sandalwood tree. And so how many are planted now by your hands and the people that work with you? Well, since 1992 till now, probably a quarter million trees. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. And not just all sandalwood, because sandalwood trees don't grow by themselves in a monoculture. No forest does. But all around us is a multi-diverse forest, a planned forest for the future use, hopefully of me, or maybe my son and his kids, can eat and feed off of these trees. The most important thing that I'm trying to teach the world is that sandalwood is an edible food. It's not supposed to be cut down, but you actually eat the nuts. And the nuts now have been discovered as a seed oil and is being sold across the internet as a healing oil for everyone. Making the tree 200 times more valuable alive than dead, cut down for its heart oil, because you can continually harvest the nuts forever. And then sandalwoods clone themselves so they literally live forever. What was sandalwood being used for specifically other than a food source that made them so valuable? Mostly it was burned as incense. And uh, according to the Vedas, the Sanskrit and Chinese ancient writings, if you burn your weight in the weight of your body when you die, it guarantees you go to heaven. So that's where a lot of the sandalwood in the world went, was wealthy people paying for their weight to be burned. So are we standing on all volcanic rock, volcanic yes. soil? Is the whole island? <laughs> the whole island is what is one layer after another layer of volcanic 
soil, lava or ash that's layered over the tops depending on how the weather was when it was going off. And then the, the trees come in and transform it into a forest which then people come in and transfer it into farmland. <laughs> so we're looking at soil here, not necessarily rock. Well, this is rock. This is Big Island right here that we're looking at, no question about it. That's yeah. part of the island. But it could go down 20 foot, and there could have been a forest underneath this before. What effect did the eruptions have on you here? Kind of changed the environment, changed the microclimate. It's a lot hotter down below, so the rain lands on all that hot lava that's still hot, and then it seems back up and creates another cloud that hits us again. We thought it was going to create a drier climate, less forest, but still the effect is still creating a, a wetter climate for us. It'll rain twice on us now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Maybe good for the trees. <laughs> good for the trees and the plants that are coming back. In the late hours of a hot June morning, we stand under a tarp in Mark's nursery, a spread of baby sandalwoods before us, I marvel that such a large revitalization project comes from such basic roots. Yet Mark harnesses the latest technology and his own time-tested methods to rear his healthy seedlings. The thing about sandalwood trees is they're only left in the real dry environment here in Hawaii. And that's because the people who were back harvesting them couldn't hike far enough with enough water to cut down those trees. So people mistakenly think they only grow at high elevation in very dry lands. But actuality in growing them for the last 27 years, I have to water all the time. Because I've uh, gone into a new type of pot called the accelerator pot, which is the latest technology in pot growing, uh, they take even more water because they have more air holes in the sides of the pot, which cause the roots to grow faster, which then causes the tree to grow faster which then makes a faster growing tree that I can plant. So instead of waiting nine months to turn over a tree to then uh, plant in the forest, I can do it in three months. And so we are on your home property where you have the nursery and how many seedlings do you have right now? Right now we're down to 1,700 seedlings growing out of 50,000 that I grew in the last five years. And so it looks like they're about three to four inches high. How long does it take for them to grow that high? These are about a month old. And some of the younger ones, of course, these ones here are only a couple weeks old. And then these ones here that are ready to plant, yeah, they're going on about four months. Some of them are almost five or six months because there's a lot of trees to plant. <laughs> so they're hardy enough around four or five months, months that they can the ground, survive. But I can keep them in these pots for at least six months before they start to go into decline. But this is the new faster growing wave. And then I also grow plants in what's called a dibble tube. And that is a deeper tube that's about 10 inches deep and uh, two inches across. And that makes it so that the tree can stay up in, in the pot for up to two years I can keep them in these pots. I have two little solar panels and one battery and it works just long enough when I'm in the hot sun. Uh, so I water in the afternoons and then the plants can dry and that helps them to not have as much mold. Where if I water them like I used to in the evening, I would get a lot of this stuff called black sooty mold, which is all over the forest and naturally occurs here. But then the wind blows it in here, the spores, the leaves are always wet, then they start growing on the wet leaves. Like most large-scale projects, repopulating the island with sandalwood trees takes money. 
Mark explained he once relied on state grants, but the process was cumbersome, and he turned instead to donations to continue the work. When I had grant funding, I did hire help to help in the nursery when we were up to 20,000 plants at one time growing. It was necessary to keep the weeding down. Yeah. But right now I'm winding it down and providing the state with the seeds who have a larger nursery and a better environment to grow the sandalwoods. 200 inches of rain, you get too much high humidity, so I start getting diseases that they don't have out there. So instead of me fighting the diseases and standing here watering an hour or two a day, I can just provide the seeds to the state. Yeah, They'll grow the trees and then we can outplant them back into the forest. So one of the diff most difficult things about doing reforestation on public lands is actually working with your public officials. Yeah, The bureaucracy that controls things. Even though they want these things, they always say the same thing, we got no money. Yeah. And if you don't have the funding to invest in the future of your environment, what kind of environment do you think you're going to have? And we only have time now, a short window, to invest before all the things that the scientists said back in 1992 start happening to everybody. And that's what is now being called climate change. It's obvious the sandalwood man is driven by passion. Where did he come from? And can we tap his enthusiasm? You've been in Hawaii for quite a long time. Where are you for originally 40 from? 40 years I've been in Hawaii. I was uh, born and raised in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, but I say I grew up in Hanamaui. I got there when I was 19 and stayed for quite a while before I ever left the jungle. <laughs> As soon as I turned 18, I started traveling across America, hitchhiking and living outside inside of trees. I picked myself up a hammock and then would crawl into any tree, anywhere, any place in the city, in the country, in the swamps of Florida, anywhere, and then hang up a hammock and live in the trees. And so I fell in love with nature and the trees so much that eventually I decided, well, somebody's cutting all these trees down. What better than somebody who loves these trees as much as I do? So I learned how to become a logger and an arborist and tree trimmer and that kind of stuff. How to tend for the forest and the plants. But the commercial industry, of course, didn't last very long. Yeah. First winter, I had to shovel snow from around the trees I was cutting down. I said, that was enough of that. <laughs> <laughs> and Hawaii-bound you were. <laughs> and Hawaii-bound I was, yeah. For me, it's about getting all the human beings to understand that we are all earthlings. We share this earth together, and it's all of our responsibility to claim it as our planet, our earth. We stand beside an old blue Chevy parked at the back of the driveway. Mark is refurbishing the truck, and it showcases his artistic skills with hand-painted mountains and sandalwoods along the side panel. On the tailgate is a reference to Hawaiian reforestation, the organization he started to support his conservation efforts. And this is not the only path he's explored to save the sandalwoods. What is the Church of the Living Tree? Okay, the Church of the Living Tree was started when this gentleman was trying to promote uh, tree-free paper. And so he started an organization that was then a nonprofit called the Church of the Living Tree, an actual church, that then got picked up by Good Earth News. Yeah. 
And then they had an article in there and I had read about the article. So I contacted him and asked him if I could start a charter out here, which I did. He sent me all the paperwork, but I never did it official as a priest. So it's more of a stewardship. Okay. I accept the stewardship for Hawaii in the Pacific area to try to promote the living tree. So I take shelter in God and say, arrest me if you want to, to promote endangered species, I'm going to grow them. And I'm doing this for a spiritual reason. And so, you know, religion and government don't go together. So they left me alone. So you have an umbrella over so here. It's an umbrella as a spiritual thing, not a monetary thing. And as long as you're promoting endangered species for the promotion of that species and not for monetary gain, you are exempt according to even federal law. It's just about money. You start making money off of growing endangered species, they're afraid that you're going to be taking the endangered species from the wild and selling it like they were doing with ginseng and all these other plants. Yeah. Did you start the Hawaiian reforestation yes. program? So that's yours. Yeah, that's mine. Mark's work is also protected by the 1986 Hawaii Law of the Aloha Spirit, which in part reads... Aloha is more than a word of greeting or farewell or a salutation. Aloha means mutual regard and affection and extends warmth and caring with no obligation in return. Aloha is the essence of relationships in which each person is important to every other person for collective existence. Aloha means to hear what is not said, to see what cannot be seen, and to know the unknowable. In exercising their power on behalf of the people and in fulfillment of their responsibilities, obligations of each department, the Chief Justice, Associate Justices, and Judges of the Appellate, Circuit, and District Courts may contemplate and reside with the life force and give consideration to the Aloha Spirit. In other words, people must be good to one another and executive officials are afforded the right to make judgments based on the good or bad intent of someone's actions and not necessarily held to rulings based solely on the letter of the law. So it begs the question, is anyone else getting it right? I went to Holland one time and in the cities, the people with their apartments and two stories and things like that, upstairs, downstairs, a lot of them have the brick houses like that. The front yard, they have this little tiny yard, yeah? Maybe 20 by 15 or something like that. It'll be a miniature forest of all dwarf little pine trees. No yard to mow. A miniature little forest creating oxygen right in their front yard. So they have the recipe. They got the recipe. They, they've been doing it for an awful long time, those people over there. Yeah, all the rest of the world has gotten it. Only in America have we not declared it a national emergency, climate change. What will it take for that to happen, in your opinion? A new administration. Mm -hmm. Yeah, New people in our government that actually accept and believe and don't think this is some kind of Al Gore money-making theory. Mm -hmm. I went to Washington, D.C. in 2007 to thank the United States 110th Congress for admitting that global warming was real. I flew there and gave away 5,000 oak trees and 110 cherry trees to the members of the Congress who ended up not getting them because they didn't have time. Some people did, like Barack Obama, Joe Biden. They actually sent their people down to come get their trees. 
And of course, my own local congressmen sent their representatives down, picked up a tree so that they could plant one at their houses in Washington. The rest of the trees ended up going to the Capitol Police, the FBI, and the, and the Secret Service. The last day, I told the head of the police chief who came out and shook my hand and said, this is the best protest you ever seen in 20 years of working in Washington, D.C., because I would blow a Hawaiian conch shell and then scream out, you can stop global warming! Free trees for everybody! And then people would run over and get free oak trees that I had bare-rooted and wrapped up in paper bags that they could take home with them. I had uh, thousands of kids from all across America get oak trees because where I was giving them away was right in front of where they would load up the bus every day. So on the last day, I told, I told the police, uh, captain of the police that, hey, these congressmen, you know, I'm trying to go in one office at a time and invite them to come out and get them. Some of them are coming and getting it, you know. I had to get special permission from some board about I wasn't uh, bribing the senators or congressmen that it was okay to give them a $15 fruit tree. It wouldn't be considered a bribe. <laughs> Even though I was uh, trying to bribe them to care, you know what I mean? But yeah. So I ended up with all these cherry trees left over. So I told the head of the police, tell everybody else, all you guys have treated me so nice. They were calling me the tree man in Washington, D.C. They didn't hey, know your real man. name? The Sandalwood Man. Yeah, no, that was the tree man in Washington, D.C., according to the Capitol Police. So uh, he told all the other officers, and, and the word got passed out to the Secret Service and to, to everybody else. And uh, I was in the congressional halls taking trees to different senators. And my friend was out there, Murder the Earth Man. And suddenly, it looked like the SWAT team was circling in on him like he, he had bombs or something. The guys on them little two-wheel things that were pulling up, a guy on a horse, a guy on a motorcycle, a limousine with the Secret Service guys jump out and all surround him and say, we want a free cherry tree. <laughs> Not many people who come to Washington gain popularity. With the police? With anyone. <laughs> with anyone. But then what did Washington do? They called it climate change instead. Do you feel like previous administrations who put more clout into global warming were making enough progress? Again, the bureaucracy started this whole thing of let's create a, a tax that's voluntary, and we'll call it carbon credits. And what it turned out is a bunch of logging companies getting paid twice. The things that were learned in 1992 Earth Summit, which was one of the things that inspired me, to start doing what I was doing is because all the scientists of the earth all said we had to create carbon sink banks. Carbon sink banks are not created by creating monoculture forests that are cut down again and again and again. That's called sustainability. I'm from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. We kind of created it in Wisconsin. <laughs> Growing trees and cutting them down again and again and again for the paper mills, right. you know? That, that's all old school. You know, the new school is, is to create watersheds. The new gold is water. Oil is history. Go buy a bottle of water. It's more expensive than oil, than gas. Reality check, people. So the last thing they have left to charge us for is our air. Mr. O'Hare is just waiting to start bottling it up and selling it to you. I don't really believe in conspiracy theories and that there's somebody trying to destroy our planet. I think it's just through pure ignorance and greed. 
people get comfortable in their lives. So how do you make people care? What you're doing is important and spreading the word is important. You've got to get people involved to, to smell the soil. How do we do that in this modern society? Uh, the best we can do is try to work with people like you to let them know that they do need to learn these things. They do need to take responsibility for the air, water, and soil. What's the problem with that? The only place where the air is really clear and your brain will work properly is deep inside of a forest where the oxygen level is higher. Our planet is 10% less oxygen availability for human beings to breathe over the last 200 years. The carbon measured on top of Mauna Loa every year since 1959 has continuously gone up at the same rate. So in all the times they measured it, there was only one time where it kind of slowed down one time. So I asked the scientists at an Earth Day fair who had the big chart up on the wall for all the kids to see, I asked them, what happened those years? It's like three or four years, it slowed down a wee bit, you know, kind of leveled out almost. He said, well, that was the years that we had the best farmer's crops across the planet. Soaking in all the carbon dioxide. Oh, so two and two, oh boy, we can all be done by a bunch of doo-doo. We can eat our way out of this carbon problem simply by growing enough food and feeding the starving people of the world. The whole problem is, is endless fields of crops, of foods, of wheat, of corn. In between, and all the riverways and everything, we need to create estuaries, keipukas, we call them in Hawaii, of vegetation that will then break up the landscape so that these monocultures don't create their own mini-climate, but you create a microclimate within that climate that changes that climate. You don't have to reforest all of the lands that are growing food. You just got to designate part of it. So my proposal is, and my message to the 7.7 billion people is, let's plan our future for us, for our future needs. We can grow what we want. Energy, food, shelter, water, soil, air. Wow, it all can be grown by us because we are human beings capable of picking a seed and planting it. As we soak in the heat of the late morning sun, Mark shares a rare treat for a mainland gal. His friend has given him a gift from his property, and it's the largest coconut I've ever seen in person. He hacks off the top with one slice of his knife to expose a lake of fresh coconut water inside. Back in the wars, they used to use coconut water as a replacement for plasma to keep soldiers alive. They could literally put the IV right into a sealed coconut, drill a hole, put it in there, and get the sugars, water, back into their body to hydrate them. He motions for me to take the first sip, which turns into a messy gulp, and I wipe my face with the side of my arm. It's sweet and fresh and revitalizing, and we share until we're full, and still so much is left. This is not the only treat Mark has planned. We're going on a field trip. We hop into his pickup and head out. Volcano National Park. They have a very good program of caring for their forest. They have some money because it's one of the most used national parks in America. 
we have more visitors to come see the volcano. It's our only tourist uh, attraction we have here on this side of the island. We're going to go see what was done in 1959 by the territorial foresters who believed once the state of Hawaii became the state of Hawaii, the state of Hawaii would never do anything about growing sandalwood back. So the territorial foresters got together and they grew a thousand sandalwood trees and planted them, uh, what eventually came the national park. The territorial foresters, are these native Hawaiians? It mostly was Japanese people back then. They were mostly the ones who got the government jobs. And forestry began with the sugarcane industry, realizing they cut down too many trees and they needed to plant some back. So they created their own forestry program, which then turned into the territorial forestry program, which then was over when the state started its own programs. Not only does Mark have a wealth of knowledge about the sandalwood, but he seems wise to most other species on the island, including those we see in Volcanoes National Park. A moa. A moa. A moa. moa Came from the sea, migrated up onto the land, yeah. the oldest plant the on oldest land. Plant still on the land, still wow. alive from prehistoric dinosaur days. That's really cool. The genetic code for all the plants we know of now are in the native forests that have continued to jump from island to island. And a lot of the plants even came from other places. South America, Asia, wherever a bird could go. And one of the birds that brought most of the seeds is called the golden plover. A long distance bird. Long distance, one of the fastest birds in the world. Travels the farthest, the fastest. Comes all the way from Alaska to here in like two weeks are from Asia to here in two weeks. And just settles on the ocean for a rest? No, don't stop. And the whole way they haven't taken a poop. And so the first thing they did here, they sit down in a tree and take a poop and take a nap. <laughs> it's called the Keipuka Pu'aulu. It's an area that was a Keipuka that the lava flowed around and all the vegetation didn't get burnt. And so you have a little tiny old growth forest growing in this environment. And in amongst it is all these species of trees that the birds aren't here to spread anymore. I have a program we call CPR, Breathe the Life Back Into Our Forest. So you have to collect the seeds, you have to protect the seed trees, and then you have to replant. And that's how you save a forest. Collect, protect, and plant. CPR. And of course, we're both excited to check in on the sandalwoods. So we're looking at a healthy sandalwood. That was planted probably by the National Park people about 20 years ago. The newest leaf that comes out has a reddish color to it. That's a sign of good health. Semi... Semi-parasitic. Semi-parasitic. Yeah, or a semi-hemophyte. It doesn't actually hurt the other plants, but it feeds off of them. So the sandalwood is tapping so into their root tapping system. Tapping into the root systems. I often try to teach the young kids that it's very important for us to use sandalwood as a symbol of how to relate with our earth by having tap roots that reach out and attach to all life around us, enhancing that environment, creating more abundance of fruit. So it's up to us as human beings to learn how to create our own symbiotic relationships with our environment that are sustaining instead of depleting. field trip comes to an end and we head back to Mark's nursery. He's just turned 60 years old and his thoughts are on who will continue his work and what he'll do next. 
what do you plan to do after this when you turn this over to the state and you're... Uh, I'll write you're, the book. Uh-huh. <laughs> retirement plan. Retirement plan. <laughs> write the book and continue doing this, but not so much. Uh, I've been doing this every week for five years straight, nonstop. It was a full-time job, 10 hours a day, 12 hours a day sometimes. And I got too old to keep that pace up, and I'd like to keep going and doing it instead just once a month and then go camp for two or three days in the forest, stay out there, get all the work done one time, because it's a transportation cost in your carbon footprint that's killing everybody! So is your son following in your footsteps? Yes, but he grows his own types of plants. He, he does the opposite. He chooses the easiest, most valuable plants to grow, and it works on that. Whereas I do this because it's necessary, and by doing it, it proves that it can be done. Now, when I asked the old Hawaiian man, Rene Silva, how do I regrow the sandalwood forest? He said, you go to the forest and watch it for two or three years, and then you'll know how. And that's all he would tell me. <laughs> yeah, he gave me some other clues and told me how to sprout them and grow them and all those kind of things. You know, he was a horticultural master. But uh, to actually know how to replant and regrow the forest, he said, you go watch it. And you did? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I did a little more watch it. I went and collected every seed from the forest for three years straight, collecting seeds and looking at every square inch of it until I understood it. So now I'm doing my best to teach Hawaiians, you know, especially the young people. Uh, yesterday I was very lucky and had some Waikea High students from Hilo come up and they all just took to the forest like fish in a pond. The young Hawaiians that have spent their lives here, you know, they're going to grow up in that forest and it's going to provide for their future needs. Mark is also working on a homestead project to provide for his own future needs. Okay, so the other thing I do besides just grow trees is also to promote the stopping of cutting down of trees. And that's by introducing what's called earth bag building, where you take 10% cement and then the soil mix from your local environment mixed together to create an alchemy to create a brick that brick is basically almost indestructible. I studied with Nadir Kili'i, Cal Earth, to learn how to make these bags of brick. And they're a continuous bag. And this design is made into a, what's called a groined Gothic arch, which is like all churches in Europe, where it comes together and you get four rooms to create a fifth room that's bigger and freestanding. So these would be bags that will continue to stack until they join at the top, creating one monolithic structure of what we call cindercrete, which is lava resistant. Really? It could just flow around it if it wasn't too tall of a lava flow. So, and once it starts going up the arch, it will not crumble into pieces. It's no, sturdy. It's solid brick, uh, wow. 350 PSI. So that's the bags. And you fill the bags full of material tamp it flat and then you get a flat brick that you then put the next brick on top and in between the flat brick you lay bob wire holding it together so that the next brick doesn't slide when you're laying it down kind of like velcroed together and where did this technique come from from uh, cal earth hesperia california they teach courses regularly this is an ancient technology that the gentleman went to the middle east to iran and saw how they built their buildings and then tried to create a replica of those things with using modern techniques. So you will have a fully working house when you're done yes. here. 
is your goal to move into this? Yeah, this would be my main house. That's yeah. so neat. Let's take a walk inside. Yes. I'll explain to you how it works. Okay, so this will be a French doors with a Gothic archway. It'll overhang so that the doorways don't get wet. Yeah, it'll be arched out. And then inside there'll be windows on either side, little three by fours. And then this will be the central room. So this will all be one room open. This will be the wraparound kitchen, fireplace in the corner, bedroom on this side. And then there'll be a wall right here. Bathroom, toilet, and sink over here. And this will be a solid wall right here, separating the two rooms with the shower hanging off of it. Mark's plans to slow down and enjoy the fruits of his labor are well underway. Yet, he just can't deny his altruistic nature. I've slowly transformed from growing plants into doing what I say, which is grow the carbon out of the air and eat it, and then Whoa. feed it to other people. So I've transformed my nursery business from growing trees that produce food you can eat to growing instant food, lettuces, spinach, and beans. So you said you're sharing this with the community? Yes, I hope to be able to help the Meals on Wheels for the shut-ins who can't get out and drive anymore. They'll go and deliver, and the government, for some reason, decided that providing fresh vegetables to elderly keeps them healthy. So it's cheaper for the government to have fresh vegetables delivered to the elderly shut-in to keep them from going to the doctor all the time. As the afternoon grew late and I reflected on my time with the sandalwood man, I asked him one last question. If you could attract the attention of one person for your cause, who would that be? Bill Gates, I guess. I do email him. I sent him my message for $7.7 billion and he liked it. Yeah. He responded? Yeah. But just a like, you know. If he would spend money on reforesting the planet, we'd have the planet reforested. Yeah. If for every computer made, there was a tree planted, every iPhone made, there was a tree planted, there'd be trees everywhere. In a progress report dated April 2017 to June 2018 from the Hawaiian Reforestation Program Foundation led by Mark Hansen, 2,170 program crew and volunteer hours were logged, and 7,042 individual plants from 11 native Hawaiian species were planted on the island of Hawaii. More than 4,800 of those were Hawaiian sandalwoods. The numbers are encouraging, yet a greater inspiration may come from just across the way in a call to each of us from the sandalwood man. Let me share with you why I do what I do to see if you like to, too. The carbon life cycle of our world is out of balance. There is too much pollution in our air, water, and soil. One can't see the darkness around us till one goes deep in a forest to breathe the air there. A world covered in vegetation, planted to provide all our needs. Food, water, shelter, 
and energy for the rest of our history all starts with the planting of a seed in the mind of humanity. Thank you for joining me for this eco-psyched feature episode. To learn more about the Sandalwood Man and how you can support the Hawaiian Reforestation Program, visit the episode page at ecosyched.com and go out and plant a native tree where you live and share your pictures with Ecosyched on Facebook and Instagram. Visit ecosyched.com for more eco-adventures. I'm Lisa B. Ecosyched would like to thank and credit the following artists for full and partial soundtracks featured in the Sandalwood Man episode. Please see the episode page on ecosyched.com for license information. Summer Shower by Quincus Marrera. Love and Sorrow by Ora. Sunshine by the Mini Vandals. Morning Mandolin by Chris Haugen. Winds of Spring by the 126ers. Natural by Endless Love, and music on the Hawaiian nose flute by Mark Hansen, the Sandalwood Man. <laughs>